Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Time for our health hacks again this Monday morning here at RCR with Dr. Glenn Davies of ReversalNZ.co.nz. Glenn, good to have you back. Yeah, it's nice to be here as always, Paul. Mitochondria, as promised. Now, mitochondria is the little battery in the cell, isn't it? If I got that right? You've got that exactly right. Um, yeah, so think of them as tiny little batteries within every single cell of the body. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and in that case, they're right at the sort of like the the base level of us operating in that case, right? Yeah, yeah so it's all about energy and um, without energy, I think there's probably nothing in the universe, um, and certainly there'd be nothing happening within our bodies. So energy is needed for every function of the body, and without energy, there is no life. Yeah, that's pretty pretty brutal. In fact, if there was no energy, there'd be nothing. Let's face exactly. it. It'd yeah, just be this huge exactly. void of nothing. And we could get a little bit metaphysical now, but, um, you know, I, I expect um, – you know, energy probably is everything within the universe at some level. It is, and there seems to be an abundance of it. So this is our way of, well, pulling it out of the universe or the environment or whatever and and putting it to use to sustain us through these little little yeah. engines, right? That's right. So, so let's actually, you know, drill down a little bit and look and see how that happens. And... Um, I've I've been thinking about this topic uh, quite a lot and how to how to sort of put it into uh, conceptualize it or put it into language that that makes sense because some of the science is actually pretty complex but let's right. have a go at it so basically we have to convert food into energy and the energy molecule is called ATP which is adenosine triphosphate and how that actually happens is ATP gets broken down into ADP, so adenosine diphosphate, and one phosphate molecule. And the breaking of that bond is what creates the energy. But what's amazing is how, how much this happens. So there are 37 trillion cells in the body, and each cell contains... 1,000 to 2,500 mitochondria. And I had to Google this, but when you um, multiply a trillion by a thousand, you get a quadrillion. So there are 37 quadrillion mitochondria within the body. Mikey, jeez. But then there's only 100 grams of ATP in the body, yet a 70 kilogram human produces about 70 kilograms of ATP per day, which means that each ATP molecule is recycled about 700 times every 24 hours. So um, I'm not sure if everyone will pick up all those numbers, but you know there's a lot of mitochondria and there's a lot of ATP and it's getting recycled a whole lot. So this is a pretty complex process yes. going full tech in every cell of the body all the time. So it's kind of has to work right. Yeah. So that's 70 kilos that, that, um, that never leaves the body. Is that correct? It's always in there and it's just constantly recycled. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, so ATP gets con converted back into ADP plus one, you know, unit of energy, and then it gets converted back into ATP, and that's happening 700 times in 24 hours. Crikey. Though when you um, use energy, certain amount of it goes from the body too. I suppose that's another process, is it? Yeah, well, um, there's this, it's also heat. And I'm going to talk about that in some detail um, soon because you either produce energy or you produce heat. And, and that's a pretty complex and very intricately controlled um, process. We're, we're going to get to that. Now, so basically you eat food and that gets digested into glucose or fat, triglyceride. And then that gets turned into ATP, which is energy for all the functions of our body, you know, thinking, breathing, uh, our heart beating, um, and everything else we do through 24 hours is all dependent on mitochondria converting glucose or triglyceride into energy molecules. So this, this process is pretty important, um, and our health and our vitality uh, depends on keeping our mitochondria healthy. Um, but before we talk about that, let's look at the history of mitochondria. So think back um, billions of years uh, to the primordial soup. So the very beginnings of life on earth, this was before there were any plants and this was before there was any oxygen in the environment. And the story goes something like this, that there was one uh, primordial organism swimming around and then there was a separate uh, one which was the mitochondria and somehow the first bacteria engulfed the mitochondria and they developed this symbiotic relationship where the uh, bigger bacteria said I'll offer you protection and I'll supply you with um, food and you supply me with energy and that looks like how it started because the mitochondria actually has separate DNA from from our human cells. So mitochondrial wow. DNA okay. is different and separate, and that's how we kind of recognize that they, they started as individual and separate organisms, but realized that that symbiotic relationship had a mutual advantage for the big bacteria, which became the cell, and then the um, smaller bacteria, which became the mitochondria. So that's kind of cool. So it was a thing on its own at one point. A sort of standalone organism. Yeah, small bacteria swimming around by itself. Gee. And then a, a bacteria must have thought it was food, engulfed it, but rather than digesting it, realized that there was a symbiosis here. There's there's some metaph metaphysical niceness about that in some way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, and that sort of kickstarts yeah, kick and then, things. Yeah. Yeah, and then yes, every every cell then has these mitochondria. But when I learned about this um, back in um, Standard Five, which, which is now Year Eleven, I think, isn't it? But you know, when we were learning about this, when you look at the textbook diagram, there's kind of one or two mitochondria in every cell, and I was quite surprised to hear that there's 1,000 to 2,500 of these little batteries with inside every cell, which is really tiny. So yeah, that's interesting. So, th so they're part of our DNA now, are they? No, they still have their separate um, DNA. So your your cells' DNA is separate from the mitochondria's DNA. So um, 
How does the mitochondria then occupy the cell? Is that uh, a separate growing process? Do they come in and sort of like yeah. move in? I mean, how does that work? Well, yeah, that's a fascinating question because um, mitochondria, they have to be, once they get tired or old, they have to be replaced. So they have to be broken down and replaced. Then new ones have to be made. But then there's a whole lot of interaction between the mitochondria themselves. They fuse and they separate and they share information. Um, and sometimes they're larger because several have grouped together and sometimes they're smaller because they're all individual. And I'm not sure that we have a full understanding of what's going on there, but there's a whole lot of intricate science going on just in those processes. But what's important is the damaged mitochondria are removed and we can influence that process of removing the damaged ones because you want them all to be functioning optimally to produce the optimal amount of energy. Mm. You know, so we can influence that process, which is called mitophagy. And then we can also influence the growth of new ones, which is called mitogenesis. So genesis to make, mitochondria making of new ones. And that way we make sure that every single one is working to capacity. But another really important concept is we don't want just a thousand within each cell. We want the 2,500 within each cell because we don't want to be redlining our mitochondria. You know, we don't want right. uh, yeah. to be running our mitochondria at uh, maximum revs. We want them just to be chugging along comfortably. So let's say instead of having a thousand, we have 2000. Each one only has to function at 50% capacity, which is what we want. And um, as we move through this talk, I'm gonna talk about what you can do to increase your number of mitochondria and to keep each one functioning optimally to have maximum energy. I think there's a symbiotic relationship between the mitochondria and the cell. So if the cell yeah. is healthy, our mitochondria will be. But equally, if our mitochondria are not healthy, they can't repair the cell. So, yeah, symbiotic relationship. Yeah, that's, that's coming up quite a bit. Okay, so what, what does one need to do to ensure, well, first of all, a good number, so we're not redlining, as you put it, and to, to, to keep that symbiotic relationship in the healthiest state possible then. Yeah, okay. So there's a little bit of science that we have to sort of understand to answer that question. So so we eat food and uh, that provides either glucose or fat or triglyceride. Um, that goes into the cytoplasm of the cell, so into the cell itself. And the first process is called glycolysis. It gets broken down into the raw materials that then enter the mitochondria. So the cell provides that first um, part of that process. And then um, I'm not sure how much science you remember from, uh, from uh, Form 5, um, but do you remember the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle? No, I don't. I'm sorry. No. And, and it, I think everyone hated it. There was, there's this, <laughs> you know, there's about 12 different enzymes and it goes around the cycle and we were asked to remember all of them. But the way I looked at it, we weren't told why we were remembering. We, then yeah, we were yeah. just told to remember them, yeah. which, which I, I hate. You will, you know, so, you will remember so, them. Yeah, don't worry about what those 12 enzymes are. You know, the process is that it's converting that raw material, that, that glucose or triglyceride, 
um, that gone through glycolysis into uh, a product called NADH and hydrogen, which then is transferred into this really cool part of the mitochondria called the electron transport chain. So Boy. this is a series of, of like picture that they're embedded in the, the inner wall of the mitochondria. And there's these four proteins Yep. And then there's this fifth one called the ATP generator. So what happens is the hydrogen goes out of the inside of the mitochondria and an electron gets transferred to the next protein. And then that happens again, electrons transferred, happens again, this happens four times. So you've created a gradient with a negative charge inside the cell and a positive charge outside. And then those hydrogens come rushing back in through the ATP generator and that's what convert, you know creates the ATP. So that's the process. It's all to do with electrical charges and the movement of hydrogen and electrons in and out. But the end result is that you get energy molecules produced. You get this ATP produced. And the byproduct of that is uh, free radicals or um, electrons joined on to oxygen. So that's kind of what's happening. You, you end up with free radicals and energy at the end of that process. But as I've been thinking about this, oh, and you also, if you, you know how I said there's those four proteins and then you've got the ATP generating molecule, mm -hmm. if they're uncoupled, if you don't connect those four proteins to the ATP generator, then that produces heat. So I was kind of thinking about this. You've got heat, electrons, oxygen, um, energy all in there together. I'm going, geez, that sounds like a nuclear reactor, you know? like Yeah, I'm it's like a quantum of, physics thing going on there. Yeah, I'm thinking if this isn't working properly, that's sounding pretty damn dangerous. That sounds like a nuclear meltdown, doesn't yeah. it? That sounds like a Chernobyl. A Chernobyl. You know, if yeah. you... Electrons and oxygen, well, they don't go well together generally, do they? That sounds like an explosion, you know, and and heat, add some heat in there as well. I'm going, you want this process to be going well. Because if, yeah. if this process is going badly, that sounds like an explosion. It could be me, a mushroom you know? cloud. Yeah, I reckon. You know, and I I mean, I, I guess I'm oversimplifying a whole lot of complicated science, mainly because you know, I don't think I fully understand this. I mean, I've never studied physics or biochemistry to this level of detail, but, you know, you want this to go right. And this free radical production, if that goes awry, then that is actually inflammation and that's damage to cells and to mitochondria. And that's when you actually start getting really sick. It's incredible to think it's so refined. Yeah, and to think that this is happening 700 times in every cell of the body per day, you know, this only has to go a little bit wrong. You know, 1% going wrong ends up being pretty significant, doesn't it? Especially if it produces free radicals, which causes more damage to the mitochondria, which reduces energy production or might create more free radical damage. It's a bit like... You know, when you think of these nuclear reactors that go wrong, um, I can't remember what the process is. Critical, they go critical. Critical, yeah, yeah. I reckon it could go pretty bad pretty quickly and pretty horribly if you don't get this right. 
Well, the fact that it um, doesn't, I mean, people can uh, limp along in a in terrible state of health for years and years. So there obviously is a lot of headroom and resilience in that system. There must be. Yeah. Um, and, and talking about that, there are some tissues and brown fat is the, is the tissue that almost entirely uncouple that uh, energy production from heat production and they just produce heat. You know, so um, brown fat is really desirable. And interestingly, you increase your brown fat by the cold water immersion, which we've talked about before. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that increases brown fat and brown fat is uncoupled. So it produces heat, but not energy. Um, so it's a way... Yeah, but it, why, why, why is it called brown fat? You might have gone through that before um, earlier, but why, why is where does that come from? Just it actually under the microscope, it just looks brown because oh, okay. it has a really high concentration of mitochondria, and the mitochondria make the tissue brown. Uh, whereas your white fat, which is most of the fat that we store around our our belly and all the places that we don't want it. That's got. It's not very metabolically active. It doesn't produce heat, and it doesn't have much mitochondria. It's basically just a warehouse. It's a, it's storage. Mm, yeah. and there's only enough mitochondria just to keep it ticking over. Whereas brown fat's a highly metabolic um, organ, and if you are wanting to lose weight, if you convert some of your white fat to brown fat, and it wastes this energy as heat, then that's a weight loss tool. So that's part of the reason why cold water immersion is an effective of weight course. loss Of course, yeah, I get it now. I, I take it there's no difference in the way these mitochondria operates in cells between males and females. It's basically the same system, isn't it? I think it's the same system, and I think it's the same system in most animals as All well. All right, because it's such an early evolutionary development yes. right so it's at the bottom one of the the lower levels of, of that process yeah and that and that's why i i think this is such an important topic because i think every chronic illness probably comes back to mitochondrial function at at its core so i, I might go on and talk about that because um cancer for example we've thought of cancer as a problem with the dna but we now are seeing cancer as a metabolic condition and a problem with mitochondria. And if you look at it like this, if you don't produce enough energy, there's not enough energy to repair the DNA within the nucleus of the cell. And then the DNA starts going awry and you develop cancer. So the DNA damage is a consequence of a lack of energy, right. not the cause, you know, so this actually changes the way that we look at cancer. And then if you also add in that fact that if you are, you don't have enough energy, you don't have enough mitochondria, you're redlining your mitochondria, you're producing more free radicals, which further damages the DNA of the cell, that is a recipe for cancer. So it's a much more effective way of looking at, at cancer. And then it creates these opportunities to view to view cancer more in the way we would view diabetes and look at it, we can actually influence cancer with the way that we eat, the way that we exercise, um, and particularly the way we eat. So that's a really exciting opportunity. Because yeah, so yeah. I always thought that, um, yeah, cancer was like a DNA-based thing, like your DNA had gone. 
exactly sort of weird and 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 you know the errors in it was you know there's something that just prevented it from being corrected all that sort of stuff but that makes perfect sense and most of our cancer research for the last 70 years has been based around uh, looking at repairing the DNA or looking at and genes. DNA. But now we've got this opportunity to go, could it be as simple as repairing our mitochondria by eating properly, perhaps some cold water immersion, perhaps some fasting? And that gives a whole lot of opportunities for treatments. Okay, so... You you can you can sort of clean up your mitochondria, let's say, with the everyday lifestyle things that we've been talking about and and yet to talk about. But damaging it is what uh, that horrible diet again and and the ways yes. of living that we've talked about. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I just before I go on to that, you know, what are we we're going to end up with? What do you do to protect your mitochondria? But just yep. before we do neurodegeneration, so I'm talking about Parkinson's disease, um, Alzheimer's disease, um, Huntington's career, those kind of conditions. Um, that is also due to a problem with mitochondrial energy production because the neurons are one of the most energy um, greedy cells in the body and they're also the longest. So some neurons, if you think about it, are a meter long. You know, so there's a lot of energy required for that 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 neuron. A meter long. Yeah, yeah. Some neurons are a meter long, you know, which is surprising. So that requires a lot of energy to keep that neuron healthy. So well, well, at an we, atomic level, that's like the other side of the planet, from one end to the other. Amazing, eh? So you know, you you've got to think about we've got to project, provide a lot of energy to keep those neurons healthy. If we're not looking after our mitochondria, that's a recipe for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. And could we prevent these illnesses by looking after our mitochondria better? Um, I suggest that probably we could. And then and could, you, could you undo some some problems too? Yeah, well, Dr. Matt Phillips, who's a an amazing neurologist working at uh, Waikato Hospital, is doing exactly those experiments now looking at ketogenic diets and fasting to see if he can improve mitochondrial health and improve um, conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And um, his, his studies are online. And yes, he's been getting some, some really encouraging results in those initial studies. Oh, that's, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. All right. And um, he's currently looking at glioblastoma, which is an aggressive um, brain tumor. And again, looking at ketogenic diets and fasting, um, to improve mitochondrial health, to influence glioblastoma. So that could mean that, that you get um, that uh, system working properly again and it goes about then the appropriate uh, sort of mechanisms in action and then what can clean up the problem. Exactly, can, um, can remove the cells with damaged DNA and replace them with um, ones with normal DNA. Wow. So that's exciting, eh? That's, That'd that's be really a huge cool. breakthrough. Yep, yep. And then, um, yeah, and then we've also got um, diabetes, but we've talked a lot about diabetes, but mitochondria are also involved in the process of um, insulin resistance and diabetes. But I guess what the listeners really want to know is what can they do to protect or repair their mitochondria? So sure. can we move yeah. on to that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so number one, 
don't overload them. So I think it's as simple as don't overeat. You know, if you overeat, you provide too much raw material to the mitochondria. They work too hard. You redline them and they produce too many free radicals, which then damages them. So my thought there is don't overeat. But there's, there's a little bit more nuance to that is that there's this um, cycle called the Randall cycle, and it means that mitochondria can only use one fuel at a time. So the standard American diet, the standard Australian diet, the standard ATRO diet, uh, one of our listeners um, sent in a question, um, what is the standard ATRO diet? It's, it's really just um, sad. We're really just trying to create that mnemonic that all of these diets, which are high in sugar and ultra-processed carbs and unhealthy fats, they are sad. And I think they overwhelm your mitochondria because they can't do two fuel sources at once. They can't do triglyceride and glucose at the same time. They can only do one. So when you throw in these diets, which are packed with both, you overwhelm your mitochondria and either the glucose is going to end up unable to be processed, which is high blood glucose, diabetes, or your fats are going to end up not being processed, which is your non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you know, in simplistic forms. So that's why I think your vegetarian or vegan diet works, which is low in fat, but higher in carbs, because you're not overwhelming your mitochondria, you know, that does the glucose, or your keto or carnivore diet works because you're doing high fat, but you're not putting the glucose in. So to me, that's perfect sense. You know, neither one is overwhelming your mitochondria. And just pigging out on an entire pizza, I think that just redlines your mitochondria, damages them, and, you know, that's a recipe. That's a problem. So so, so many people do that. Yeah. So don't, don't overeat, you know, energy, but equally look at these um, diets that emphasize, um, you know, plants or emphasize um, healthy fats and proteins, because I think that's consistent with this Randall cycle concept. Um, what else? Make new mitochondria. Now, how do you make new mitochondria? That's exercise. Um, exercise encourages your muscles to make mitochondria because they, you know, they need more while you're exercising and then while you're at rest, you've got spare capacity. And then the cold water immersion, which again and again seems to be such an effective tool for, um, for our mental health and for our metabolic health. And that can be as simple as turning the shower onto cold for a brief period of time at the end of your shower. Now it's midwinter. I'm not suggesting that people walk down to Lake Topol where I live and, um, and go in unless they're very hardy. But, um, you know, that, that actually is what we're talking about. We're talking about immersing your body in cold water and the body responds by making more mitochondria. Um, I see the surfies out, you know, in the middle of winter, the area I'm at, and it's pretty cold. That would be that, wouldn't it? Exactly. It's exactly what that is. So um, cold water immersion makes new mitochondria and then you have extra capacity um, when you're just cruising. Right. Okay. Well, that's not hard to do. Turn the shower on cold for a bit. That's easy. Yeah. Well, I kind of think <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> yeah, but if you if you visualize the uh, the benefit that you're giving yourself, maybe yeah. it, maybe that makes it easier. 
and also build up i think is the key you know you you don't you might want to start in the summer but you don't have to start with freezing cold for four minutes you can sort of start with uncomfortably cool um and build it up one thing i've uh, uh, noticed because i used to crash into the sea after runs in the winter um and okay it's a bit uh like whoa while well, you're doing it but afterwards you feel amazing exactly there's something yeah. about it that you just wow it's an incredible feeling it's almost like a high actually yep so um so get into that in some capacity right um, okay then don't damage your mitochondria and what damages your mitochondria um my old villain sugar sugar damages mitochondria and then these vegetable oils you know so my pet hate canola oil and um, sunflower oil and safflower oil, all these vegetable oils, they are toxic to mitochondria because they get incorporated into the cell wall, but they're not healthy oils. And then you can have this thing, um, which I've only just started to learn about, it's called electron leak. You know, and the, the electrons oh. can actually leak out of the mitochondria and electrons, you know, you know how we were talking about that nuclear reactor scenario. Yeah, yeah. You don't want you don't want nuclear activity, uh, nuclear um, products leaking out of your uncontained. Yeah, yeah. You you don't want electrons leaking out of your mitochondria because that causes this free radical damage. You know, so these vegetable oils weaken the mitochondrial mitochondrial cell wall or inner membrane wall and allow the electrons to leak out. You know, that is bad news. Don't put these vegetable oils in. And remember, they will be in every processed food because the manufacturer will use the cheapest oil they can to get the result. And that's and, the cheapest oil, yeah. You know, and sugar and fat together, vegetable oils and sugar together, which is most of your ultra-processed confectionery, that's, a, that's just terrible for your mitochondria. Don't do it. Um, I, I'm starting to think after uh, hearing you um, mention these uh, vegetable oils in particular, that is it too strong to say they should be off the shelves now, shouldn't they? I mean, what's uh, the benefit apart from just cheaply fluffing up processed food? That's all they're there for. They, sh they should be off the shelves, definitely. I can't see that happening in the near future from a central government level, but... You know, the next best thing is that people educate themselves about the damage caused by these poofers, polyunsaturated vegetable oils, particularly if they're heated and cooled multiple times, like happens in your deep fryer in yep. your in your takeaway shop. You know, so just realize how toxic they are and protect yourself and your mitochondria from them. And the trans fats, which are the ultra bad guy in this group, those trans fats have been removed from the food chain as much as we can. You know, the next is to come down to the next level and deal with these polyunsaturated vegetable oils and ban them. Okay, just had to get that in. <laughs> yeah. Hey, now, and then next step, don't poison your mitochondria. And there are some specific toxins um, that do. And the really interesting one is a product that was called DNP, which was dinitrophenol. It was used last century uh, as a diet pill. And what it did is it uncoupled the electron transport chain from the ATP generation, and it caused um, people to overheat, basically, and, and die from malignant hyperthermia and fatigue. 
So they weren't producing energy, wow. okay. but they were producing too much heat. And obviously it worked as a, as a diet pill because people were wasting their energy as heat. But it caused this malignant hypothermia. People died, and that's from uncoupling the mitochondria just too, you know, in too much of an extreme way. So I think there's probably lots of other um, toxins that will be damaging our mitochondria. I don't think we have a, a, a comprehensive list yet, but um, you know that's a classic example of whoops. It looked like a good idea, but um, maybe it would be better to lose weight by going on a keto diet than taking something that causes malignant hypothermia and extreme fatigue and ultimately death. Malignant hypothermia. That's a yeah. new one. It's a very rare condition, um, and anaesthetists are aware of it because it can happen uh, during an anaesthetic very, very rarely. So so that's where I became aware of it as a term. Um, I was just thinking maybe it's a good time to go through some of the uh, interactions and feedback that, that you've had uh, through these uh, chats. So maybe we'll collate some of those up because it's quite a fair stack now and uh, spend uh, um, a program sort of moving through them and see what comes out of that because there'll be interesting points and information to come out of those inquiries and those interactions. So what do you reckon about that? Yeah, I'd love to do that because I'm aware that we haven't um, really answered uh, too many of the, the listeners' questions. So, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's um, focus on responding to some of the excellent questions. There's been some amazing feedback, hasn't there, Paul? There's a lot of interest. Let's remind people, Glenn, you're not here to diagnose over the radio, right? So no. you won't be doing that. No, we're, we're just um, sharing information uh, and knowledge, which is the key to health. Okay. Until next Monday, Dr. Glenn Davies, thank you so much. See you then. Thank you, Paul. Bye. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.